you ride Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn And this is Bad With Money Welcome I'm about to say something unpopular, which is ironic considering the topic of this episode. Cancel culture exists. Denying its existence and denying where it takes place is to oversimplify an issue that is complex and spans many different behaviors and consequences and to ignore the real effect it has on people's lives and livelihoods for both sides of the cancellation. What actually means nothing is the word canceled. One of this week's guests framed it like this. If you don't want to use the word cancel, you have to use harsher words. And that is uncomfortable. Canceled is made up. It's appropriated from black slang. We already had words for what happened to people like Monica Lewinsky or Vanessa Williams or Lance Armstrong or Gary Hart, all of whom were canceled, quote unquote, before Twitter existed. What I've both experienced and contributed to is bullying, threats of violence or acts of violence, ostracization, accountability, pylons, punitive justice, good faith and bad faith discourse, or even just an internet game. When aimed at the right people with direct intent, this criticism is a powerful tool. When aimed at systemic issues, it can be extremely useful. When aimed at individuals, I find it less appealing. When aimed laterally or punching down, I find it appalling, especially on Twitter where the days move so fast and the targets are constantly changing. One day, it feels like everyone is mad at someone with actual power, and the next, an account with 13 followers is being piled on for a thoughtless misstep or even sure for actual racist or sexist views. It's all handled with the same level of gravitas and intensity. Twitter wants it that way. If the product is free, you are the product. I'll explain. In 2020, Twitter made 86% of its revenue as a company from placing ads on your timeline. Advertisements generated $3.2 billion using promoted tweets, trending topics, and promoted accounts. Advertisers are paying big bucks to get in front of Twitter's 192 million active users. In North America, different sources say different exact numbers, but on average, a user is on Twitter for two hours every day. And for some of you, I know it's way more. No wonder companies are paying top dollar to advertise on your uninterrupted eyeballs for hours at a time, especially when TV commercials have become obsolete. Twitter makes most of its money off of keeping you there. Parker Malloy wrote a piece for Medium.com about the ways the media and Twitter piggyback onto each other. A tweet gains steam because quote-unquote journalists are under pressure to get clicks and payment and scoop each other, especially if it includes buzzwords and social issues that already exist. The clicks send more users to spend more time on Twitter lest they miss out on the fun or the quote-unquote news. Because more people on Twitter are talking about it, it trends. And it trending leads to more people talking about it and more articles. The person at the center of the controversy either decides to apologize or not apologize, spawning another round of media and tweets responding. Next come the articles about how outrage culture is out of control. A new group of people pile onto the first person who made the accusation, harassing them for creating the controversy in the first place. Does this actually change anything? In some cases, it does. It can help us get more progressive candidates for office. It can bring attention to dire situations in other countries. It can empower victims of violence and rape. That can happen. 
But if Twitter becomes boring or too positive, it is essentially useless. So the app and users who want to grow their following to a point where they might get paid are incentivized to create scenarios that hit on vulnerable emotions or single out specific people as totems for scenarios best served by years of activism or concentration on long-term global goals. For many on the app, they are not activists. They have not put in years of work on a problem. They want results immediately. How can I immediately make what I deem positive change? I've participated. In July of 2020, the comedian Jessica Kirshen came under fire for transphobia and I contributed to piling on her. Was what she said bad? Yes. Was creating a stir over a singular person's bad behavior going to solve transphobia? In retrospect, once out of the direct high and excitement of leading a cancellation, no. And what did I even want from Jessica? An apology? A proclamation that she was donating to the Marsha P. Johnson Institute for her management to drop her? What did I actually want? I have no idea. And everyone participating probably has different wants to achieve justice. But spending 12 hours on Twitter stewing, heart pumping, shaking with thrill, waiting for her to fuck up again so I could leap on it was not healthy or productive. Where was the weapon aimed? Was it worth days of my short life crouched over my phone? Maybe it stopped her from telling a joke that would encourage an audience member's transphobia. Maybe it gave other comics pause and steered them to reevaluate their own material. But I have no way of confirming that. Who actually benefited from all this? Not me. Not Jessica, a random token for a deep systemic problem. No, who actually benefited? Twitter. Twitter got me to look at ads for 12 hours. They are the ones who made money off of this labor. I'm not a fan of Jessica Kirshen. Her comedy doesn't affect me. But the lure was addictive, and the feed kept feeding the addiction. I've also been the main character of the day. The last time... The time which convinced me to delete Twitter forever was when I criticized the elevation of the book and movie Love, Simon as a definitive piece of gay media when at the time it was published and became a bestseller, the author, Becky Albertalli, was closeted as a bisexual. I believe I expressed it as queer art should be made by out queer people. To me, a pretty unoriginal thought. I also advise that closeted or quote-unquote straight people who want to make queer art should wait until they feel ready to answer questions before doing so, until they've participated in and have experience in the community. I was mostly thinking of my own leap to discredit scissoring as a sex act when I was in my queer infancy to now knowing that it is perfectly common. I hadn't spent enough time with queers to make my art accurate. In a world where it's everyday discourse to ask that out queer actors play queer characters, I didn't really see a difference in what I was saying. Obviously, Becky Albertalli was never straight. She was bisexual the whole time, but she was presenting as a white, straight person when she achieved these achievements. People were furious at me, and they took it personally. A professor retweeted it saying that this sentiment is why some of her students die by suicide. Others claimed I was harming bisexuals and being biphobic, which maybe I was. Becky Albertalli herself, a legitimate millionaire with more influence than me, took to Instagram posting a baby photo of herself and asking to end the bullying of herself, which I found interesting because everyone I saw was defending her and criticizing me, again, rightfully so, so the implication, I suppose, was that I was bullying her and I guess that she was a little baby. Anyway, I tweeted way more controversial thoughts. I assumed wrongfully that this was a boring belief. It was actually pretty careless. Most people were right, and I later apologized. I was coming from a bitter place, and I shouldn't have spoken so flippantly, but that's not really what anyone wanted. They wanted to win the game of getting the best jab at the person of the day. Their jokes were rewarded with retweets and attention, possibly follows, and they wanted to punish me. 
The drama kept me on Twitter for hours. I must have seen so many ads. Of course, this is the entrance fee for being notable in any way, but there are also real financial and artistic consequences. The day after the mass Twitter reprimanding, I lost two book deals. The editor emailed my agent to say I was finished because of the Twitter discourse. I was meant to write two queer romance novels. The irony, the very people complaining about not having enough accurate representation in media written by actual queer people who by definition need to be out to be visible, had successfully extrapolated my harm and intention to where there would now be less authentic queer art. Another friend of mine, a trans woman creating much needed transmedia, refused to immediately denounce a white male friend who was under fire and the pylon redirected itself to her. She was less famous, more marginalized, thus an easier target. He works continuously. She is now on food stamps. On the flip side, Louis C.K., accused of numerous counts of sexual harassment to which he admitted, still tours. Follow the money and the power to where you take aim. What would have been a just punishment for my tweets? My favorite celebrities made fun of me, fans disposed of me, worried to be seen following someone problematic or put off by a difference of opinion on their timeline. When I tweeted about other unrelated things I was made fun of, reminded of my worst mistakes, picked at for my other work, if I'd been in a less stable place, I probably would have killed myself. That's not an excuse, obviously, but it is a potential consequence. Should I have died for saying something biphobic? Perhaps everything that happened is exactly what I deserved. Maybe you'll hear this and feel good about it. You'll think, I'm glad they lost their book deals. Gabby is bisexual and also biphobic and good riddance to their art. Keep your two queer books. We don't want them from you because you're problematic no matter the decade of other works. And that's fair. Maybe Twitter worked how it should have. Maybe I received the punishment my thoughts provoked. Is that justice? This all slots nicely with the story of trans writer Isabel Fall. This week, we're going to hear about what happened to her from reporter Emily Vanderwerf, a trans woman who covered the bullying of Isabel and is one of the few people who has spoken to Isabel directly. And later, losing work due to cancellation might end up being a vintage millennial issue. Our second interview today is with 21-year-old Serena Shahidi, who you may know as Glam Demon 2004, a TikTok creator who was canceled for a video she made. Well, actually, I don't really know why she was canceled. I just saw that she was. A key aspect of the pylon is to make sure people know this person sucks and is harming others without having to do their own research as to what happened and why. Serena handled it with remarkable confidence and business acumen, so Gen Z might just have figured out how to monetize being bullied. But first, the sad story of Isabel Fall. My name is Emily Vanderwerf. So I wanted to talk to you about the story of Isabel Fall, but in a larger sense, Twitter, can you just give a brief, I know brief is going to be wild, but can you give a brief overview of what happened with the story of Isabel Fall? Isabel Fall is a trans woman who was sort of in the process of coming out and she was a science fiction writer. So she wrote a story called I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter, which was some uh, basically a, a story about a person whose gender was literally converted by the U.S. military to attack helicopter. Initially, it received a lot of praise. Then there was a lot of pushback and there was a lot of suspicion of, well, a trans woman didn't write this, basically. Isabel was greatly troubled by this. Her gender dysphoria kicked up something fierce. She ended up hospitalized and has since sort of decided not to transition because she feels like everyone can see through her facade. She spoke to me for an article I published in July, and this was the first time she had ever spoken about these events publicly. article is called How Twitter Can Ruin a Life, which I know yes. was not your first choice of headline. 
But basically, this story, the title of it was a play on a transphobic meme, which caused people to be suspicious, Mm -hmm. even without having read the story. So this is kind of one of those things where Twitter got ahead of itself. And what were the, the consequences for Isabel? I mean, they were just tremendously bad. Like she was constantly scrolling Twitter and sort of searching for her name. And people were saying the worst possible things about her. One thing that she returned to again and again, and I think is like just a wild sign of of the times was uh, her bio only said Isabel Fall was born in 1988. And people took uh, that as a sign that she was a Nazi because, of course, 88 is a, mm-hmm. a sign of white supremacist Nazis. But also, a lot of people were born in 1988. Like, Me. <laughs> I don't know a way around this, you know? <laughs> yeah, she didn't want to give out too much identifying information because she was still largely closeted. She was still closeted and she didn't want people to sort of connect her legal identity to her Isabel identity. She didn't want to out herself. She didn't want to have to publish this story as a trans woman. I'm putting quotes around that because it's like a it's like a thing that we say in the community to like ward off criticism. Like, I am saying this as a trans person, therefore. Mm-hmm. And she didn't want to have to do that. She wanted the story to stand on its own, not as an example mm-hmm. of quote unquote representation, which it was, but people kind of need to be hit over the head these days. And Twitter, mm-hmm. which is fond of stripping nuance of everything, immediately stripped the nuance from this. So I think you said something like, if you don't want to use the word cancel, then you have to use harsher words, you know, because mm-hmm. I think people are fatigued by the the concept of cancel culture and it's all become like way too convoluted. And to me, I really resonated with that because then you have to name what's happening, which is like yes. bullying or violence mm-hmm. or ostracization. You have to kind of take it to the next step of like, okay, so what ideally would you like to happen here? Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people sort of talk about if you are for reformative justice, if you are for abolition, like how can you be for this sort of behavior? So can you talk about like the other words? What other words would you use or what are the harsher words that you would have to use? This is an idea that a bunch of people have sort of circled around, this idea that what we call Mm – cancellation or cancel culture. We already have terms for it. As you mentioned, like bullying is a term we have for a thing that happens Mm -hmm. that falls under that umbrella. Censorship is a term we have for a thing that sometimes falls under that umbrella. Accountability. It's a word already. Exactly. Yes. The second you start shoving everything underneath that umbrella, things that are legitimately terrible, like I believe what happened to Isabel, Get grouped in with like, oh, somebody criticized a white guy on Twitter. And, mm-hmm. you know, but like criticism, that's a word we have. And, you know, there's bad faith criticism, there's good faith criticism, but you being criticized is not de facto cancellation. Mm-hmm. What happened to Isabel Fall was that she was bullied to the point of suicidal ideation. She checked into a hospital and she effectively detransitioned. Mm-hmm. Those are all words we already have, but saying them is a lot harder to hear than saying Isabel Fall was canceled. Of course. And you have to take accountability yourself for what role you played in tweeting about it, in getting eyeballs on it and performing this narrative. Yeah. I think people don't want to think that they've contributed to anything like that. Yeah. People don't want to think about the stuff that they do online having consequences. Totally. I 
Emily Vanderwerf have participated. I have participated in these Twitter things. You know, it's so easy to become the quote unquote main character of the day. It's happened to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's happened to everyone with a Twitter presence. And Twitter has a tendency to turn everything into a crusade. And like I've tried, tried, tried in the past two years to be better about like not just hopping on the main character of the day and dunking Mm -hmm. on them. Because I think it's I think it's actively harmful. I think we forget that real people are involved and we can really hurt those people. Yeah. It's not this thing of of just log off because obviously Isabel is a writer. She knew that people were talking about her and her work and Mm -hmm. she was curious about how it would be perceived because she was trying to slowly introduce herself as a woman. And the fact that, you know, people were like, no, you're not a woman. There's no way this could be a woman is not criticism of the story. It's not literary no. criticism. And I think people thought it it was. You had this thing where you criticized the Harper's letter, which was a letter mm-hmm. that a bunch of people signed being like, cancel culture is bad or whatever. Yeah. And you were mostly attacked and bullied by people not within your community, not yeah. other queers or not. Yeah. You were kind of attacked by like the right wing, right? Yeah. I'd say the neoliberal center left folks who tend to valorize and fetishize free speech. Okay. Free speech absolutists. You know, a lot of it was just people being like harshly critical, which I'm a film and TV critic primarily. Yeah. I can take that. <laughs> I can handle that. I did start getting death threats. I did start getting threats of sexual assault, other violence against me. And like, I knew that probably they were not going to find me and like come to my house, but mm-hmm. also I didn't know that, mm-hmm. you know, I have my stuff locked down pretty tight because mm-hmm. when I came out as a trans woman, I was like, I'm going to experience endless waves of harassment. And it's actually been like, I don't experience endless waves of harassment, but every so often I experience a wave of harassment mm-hmm. and you never know when it's going to come and it always makes your life hell. So I was pretty sure they weren't going to find me, but I couldn't know that. And like, I spent several days just in a pit Mm -hmm. of feeling like all of the worst things about me were true, even though, and this was like the thing that I had that a lot of people who are subjected to this don't have. I have friends. I'm a prominent name within my industry. People know who I am. And people spoke out against what was happening. You know, people were Mm -hmm. very vocal. That wasn't the case with Isabel Falls. She had friends. She had close friends. She had a close group that was helping her through this. But it wasn't like they were all there defending her against things that folks were saying. I also think there is a disproportionate thing that happens here. I put my thing on Twitter. I was expecting that conversation to happen on Twitter. Isabel Fall published a short story in a science fiction magazine. That is not the kind of thing that produces Twitter discourse. Well, I think there's two things that happen, and I, I was hoping to get your thoughts on this. There's the ostracization and bullying from... Outside of your community. So like when I've been picked up by right wing blogs and things like Mm -hmm. that, where I can kind of go, well, I don't like those people. But Mm -hmm. it is also like scary. There are death threats, there are rape threats, things like that. Versus Mm -hmm. the worst times for me have been when I've been ostracized, Mm -hmm. bullied, attacked, criticized in a way that isn't just critical of what I'm saying, but of me as a person without nuance or, or conversation by people in my community. So like, can we talk about the difference there and how yeah. how that affects people differently? 
Right. If you want to lump all of that into two different movements, there is the movement of in-community norm policing run amok, basically, which is what Mm -hmm. you're talking about. And I have had that happen, too, where people have been like, you are transing wrong. It's never blown up, you know, but when that happens, I feel it in my bones in a way I didn't when people were making legit death threats. That was worse, the legit death threats, I want to be clear, because, but it was because of scale. And then you have the out-of-community policing, which is what people talk about when they talk about cancel culture, because inevitably it's like people from a marginalized group criticizing people from a group that has much more power. There does seem to be like a real focus on trans people are criticizing me, and that is cancel culture. Mm -hmm. And then you do have the occasional situation like what happened to me, which is, you know, I criticized someone outside my immediate group who worked at my organization. And I criticized this letter more generally that was signed by a lot of people I did not particularly enjoy. And (laughs) I have been critical of in the past and it turned into, you know, you're trying to cancel me. That increasingly is what we talk about as cancel culture. When people want to talk about that incident, they talk to the guy I directly criticized. They've never talked to me. We're talking about it now, but like the news stories at that time didn't bother reaching out to me, and I was the one who was getting death threats. It is a very weird thing where we have decided that like this thing where the people with more power are being criticized is worse than the thing that is actually hurting and ruining people's lives because they're in marginalized communities. They don't have structural power. They often don't have safety nets to fall back on. And that means that norm policing can run amok and can become awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's power dynamics, right? It's aiming the weapon at the right place. You know, I think there's a lot of helplessness in terms of like the bigger stuff So let's go after an easier target. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's often the people that are trying that become the targets. But I think like you, there's a, there's a, that big word cancel. And then there's a huge difference between, you know, going after someone like Louis C.K. or going after someone like Harvey Weinstein or whatever. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. going after someone within your own community who you disagree with. And I think there's like this thing of like, overstatement of harm, I think, in some ways. Mm -hmm. What was that like with Isabel and like the jump to transphobia and the jump to like, this is harming me. So then people from outside the trans community were like amplifying. Can you like talk a bit about that? Yeah. So what happened was there was a lot of early praise for the story. And then people saw the title And I do want to say that in the early moments of this story, there was a lot of weird stuff happening in the comments section that I think was driven by right-wing groups who found this, saw their favorite like transphobic meme, and were like, at last, the left is Mm. making fun of trans people too. They hadn't read the story either. They were judging it by the title. Reading four paragraphs of that story, selected at random, make clear how carefully she has thought about gender. Mm -hmm. So what happened was it started with trans people who were like, okay, this is a transphobic title. And then it became like, therefore, it's a transphobic story. And what happened was it like escalated from, I have some criticisms of this story, Mm -hmm. to I think this story is bad, to this story has actively harmed me. And like, it didn't take that long for that to escalate. And by the time it gets to this story has actively harmed me, that's the stuff that cis people picked up. That got retweeted because 
I mean, I'm a good ally, if you if you will. If I see people from a group that I'm not in saying this is awful, this is horrible, you know, this is whatever, I'm more inclined to retweet that than I am people saying this is a more nuanced take mm-hmm. on a situation mm-hmm. that has been turned into something on Twitter. And that's what happened. A lot of cis people saw this and were like, trans people are being hurt and I need to talk about this. And they were wrong. They amplified it with good intentions without reading the story. Yes. Okay, so I left Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore. And this is what happened. Would that I could. (laughs) Okay, but people say they can't leave. And I think that they can. Because I'm a writer. I'm a whatever. And I had 135,000 followers. And I went, bye. Yeah. Obviously, like, my agent and manager and, like, book people, like, aren't thrilled. But I was like, I have to go. And from leaving, I have realized the monetization of the way that the app works. Can we like talk about this thing that I came to realize, which is like Twitter is free, but it is making money off of you. It's not actually free in the way that we think. You are the product. Yeah. And your outrage is the product. Yeah. Twitter is using you. I mean, all social media sites are doing this, but Mm -hmm. Twitter in particular is using you to sell a kind of emotional response and its algorithm is directly targeted to get the most outrageous, most diametrically opposed things in front of you. And anger and fear sell better than joy. Like those are the top three things. Here's a happy little dog doing a happy little dance. That'll go viral. We've all seen that happen. But like it's much easier to go viral like this This happy little dog is actually being mistreated by its owner or something like that, you know, where you stir up that anger. Twitter is driven by an algorithm that aims to provoke emotional responses because that's how they make money. They have you tweet more. They have ads pop up. They just are constantly attempting to get your emotional engagement because that is how they keep you on the platform and that is how they keep you looking. Twitter is just an endless feed of the worst things that are happening in the world because that's what's going to make me angry. And that's not to say I shouldn't be tuned into the worst things that are happening in the world, especially as a white American woman of means. But also, a constant stream of that does not help you. It creates this despair. If you're sitting there in despair that the status quo can never change, then you're not going to change the status quo. Despair is a powerful tool of people Mm -hmm. with power. And Twitter is built to manufacture despair because despair makes you not go do anything else. It keeps you on Twitter. So despair, rage, fear are all going to keep you there. You are the product. Twitter is making money off of you. I realized before Twitter, if I had an idea, I would put it into my work. I would maybe Mm -hmm. write a screenplay. I would maybe think about the idea and why it was important to me and write a longer piece about it. But you don't get the same immediate dopamine from like tweeting the idea right away. Yeah. But if you think something is free, you're the product. Twitter is making money off of keeping you emotionally invested in a cancellation for 24 hours, for 48 hours, for 72 hours at Mm -hmm. the expense of like real people. And there was something really interesting where you were talking about personal responsibility to sort of keep you from seeing what's broken. So instead of going after the tech companies and the capitalism that is keeping a top 1% of people having most of the money, it's easier for you to hop on that platform and bring down some person who tweeted something like mildly unthoughtful. And the idea of like what is causing you harm is warped where you're like, I'm being caused harm 
by somebody who had a different opinion than me on the internet versus like I'm being caused harm by a tech company who is taking up so much resources in the world and not paying taxes. So like, can you talk a little bit about the personal responsibility element of it? We've spent 20 years basically being told the world is doomed. So change to reusable shopping bags, drive less, recycle more, turn down your AC. All of these are good things. All of these are great ways to improve the planet, but also your life. It's just like a better, more responsible way to live in the world. But the way that we would stop, I think something like 80% of carbon emissions is like, there's like 15 companies where if they cut their carbon emissions by even 50% tomorrow, we would get some breathing room in terms of this. And they don't want you to like, think about that. I think a lot about digital activism And Twitter especially has been good for exposing me to the perspectives of people who are not like me, who have legitimate issues and things that they need to talk about and like ways the world needs to change. But Twitter is not really also helping me join in a movement to materially change their lives. It might promote a fundraiser, but like, what is that going to do in terms of the systemic problems that need to be fixed in the world? Twitter is not designed to tackle systemic problems because Twitter is a systemic problem. The second that you look at like the ways that our lives are inseparable from social media now and how difficult it is to, for instance, not buy anything from Amazon. And I'm not making a value judgment if you buy stuff from Amazon because I do as well. But like it's this huge behemoth corporation and the impetus is placed on me to be the one who like doesn't use this corporation that's taken over our world octopus like. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, a thing where we need systemic change. We don't need me to use reusable shopping bags as good as that is and as much as that does, it's not going to save the planet. It is a thing that has been designed as a panacea to make me feel like I'm doing something so I don't actually go out there and band together with other people and do something. Mm-hmm. Twitter's a tool. You can use it you know, in good ways and in bad ways, but I just want people to realize that they're being directed by an algorithm to feel mm-hmm. a certain way, to be You're sold. You're being manipulated. Mm-hmm. Products. You're being manipulated. And the real-life consequences of that are – People like Isabel Fall, who you said on the other podcast, it was essentially a murder because that person Mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Or I've had material career consequences, friends of mine. uh, Nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear it. They're all like, wow, wow, wow. But one friend of mine's on food stamps because of getting lumped in with someone else who got canceled, which by the way is a whole thing, right? What in your mind, what is just? (laughs) Justice is not best carried out at the mob level. Mm -hmm. Justice in general, I think, is best carried out at a one-on-one level. And I'm talking about like if somebody hurts you. I'm not talking about like Mm -hmm. if someone, you know, murders murders you or if someone like steals your (laughs) car. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about like if somebody hurts your feelings, if somebody says something insensitive to you, if somebody is quote unquote triggering you. I mean, I'm a trauma survivor. I know how much that sucks. I know how much it hurts to be in a situation and just suddenly have all of your synapses firing. And the person who did that feels like the immediate source of your harm. And you need to talk to them and you need them to understand what they've done. And like other people need to understand what's Mm -hmm. been done to you. And like, that's a thing that happened here. The title of this story reminded a lot of people of times they had been subject to transphobic assault online. 
But that's not the fault of Isabel Fall. That's the fault of the people who transphobically assaulted them online. So yes, I think justice is probably best carried out mm-hmm. one-on-one. And I certainly don't think justice is best carried out on Twitter. But I think the thing to do when you feel compelled to tweet about something that's making you mad is to weigh who has the power in this dynamic. If I'm mad at Joe Biden, yeah, I can say, Joe Biden, you suck. You know, like like that is part of living in our society. <laughs> if I'm mad at Joe Biden, a guy from Humboldt County, California, who just happens to share a name with the president and tweeted a thing about how he thinks ducks are overrated. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a huge power differential there, especially with me, you know, having a lot of Twitter followers and having a, an online presence and an online profile. What if he tweeted something like trans women aren't women? Yeah, I think it is OK to be upset with him. I think it is OK to like yeah. reply to that, I guess. I don't know why when we have mechanisms to report tweets like that, when we have mechanisms to block people like that, when we have mechanisms to mute people like that. That's not the first course of action. Mm-hmm. Calling out Joe Biden from Humboldt County, who hates trans women and ducks, is not going to affect transphobia in the world. Transphobia is structural. Yeah, I don't want right. there to be transphobes. Right. I would prefer to not be told I'm a terrible person for living as myself. But the problems are larger than one guy. Yeah, But I think they think like, okay, so then Joe Biden from Humboldt (laughs) County who hates ducks and trans women, he's a a hiring manager at a bank. And so people are like, he should be fired because he's probably Mm. not hiring trans people. Yay, we got him fired. We've made some material change in the world. Yeah. And I'm not averse to that point of view. I would rather there be fewer people who have deep-seated biases and prejudices at the hiring level of these major companies and major corporations. And I can see where like tanking someone's life feels like justice. I'm just not immensely convinced it is because I don't know that this guy is going to suddenly be like, well, now I love trans people, you know, like this guy's not going to see the error of his ways. He's going to double down. And ideally the point of justice is to get people to find some way to make restitution. I don't know that that's a way to make restitution. Justice is best carried out one-on-one. And Mm -hmm. like, ideally, you know, somebody would actually talk to this guy. I don't know the exactly right answer here. I don't either. And you know, there's also a difference. I want to be clear between that and Joe Biden from Humboldt County who hates trans women and ducks, <laughs> who doesn't hate trans women, but who tweeted something like, yeah. I'm a man and I love vaginas and like love being straight or whatever mm-hmm. and just like wasn't thinking and now is fired from his job at the bank. Yeah. All of these things are quite different. Right. I also think anytime in a quote unquote free society, you are trying to materially impact someone's life in a way that will be to their detriment, you had better be pretty sure that the person you are materially hurting has some degree of structural power that is actually putting them in a position where they can further the structural problems within the country. And like, A hiring manager at a bank, arguably. I think that's Mm -hmm. an edge case, but certainly he is hiring people. And like, if I want to work at a bank, I don't know why that would happen. But if I want to work at a bank and he sees me 
and Googles me and sees, you know, my, my coming out essay or something, he's probably going to be like, no, I don't want you working at my bank. Or, you know, if I'm a giant duck and I walk in. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Of yeah. course. Yeah. So like there, I, I think you can make an argument for it. There is structural power here. I don't know if it is helping the world necessarily. It is maybe helping a couple of people, which is what makes it an edge case. But I am increasingly less convinced that every little bit helps. But at the same time, I think somebody who is in a position of power and doesn't like trans women should be subject to criticism. I think they should be subject to people saying, your opinion is wrong, you are actively hurting the world, and so on. And I always try to draw that line between criticizing the powerful and like just randomly, wantonly hurting people. Because the second one, it's way too easy to just roll a whole bunch of stuff up into a ball Katamari Damasi style and just be like, this is all the same. When you're criticizing people, you're forced to be more specific about what you mean. And hopefully that's helpful. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you and your work and find the article about about Isabel? Uh, so the article is called How Twitter Can Ruin a Life. It is on Vox.com. Just Google that plus my name, Emily Vanderwerf, or just Google How Twitter Can Ruin a Life Vox. It'll probably pop up. You can also find me, uh, alas, on Twitter, twitter.com slash EmilyVDW. Also, if anything I've said sounds interesting to you, I'm wrestling with a lot of this stuff in my scripted fiction podcast, Arden, which is about two women who fall in love. And also they solve crimes. So that's fun. Next, I'm going to be talking to TikTok's Glam Demon 2004, a.k.a. Serena Shahidi, who was what she and her friends call soft canceled about how she actually gained from being harassed about a video. My name is Serena Shahidi. I do TikToks and I also have a podcast. So, okay, why did you get canceled? I got canceled, quote unquote, soft canceled, one of my friends called it. I made a video essentially talking about, because I'm on TikTok a lot, and I get annoyed by a lot of the things I see on TikTok. Uh And one of the patterns I noticed was a lot of these girls were making videos speaking to young girls about like confidence and stuff like that, and basically just saying like, oh, look at yourself in the mirror, tell yourself you're hot, tell yourself you're sexy. And I made a video being like, you can't build confidence on that, like read a book or something. Mm -hmm. And people thought it was condescending, internalized misogyny, Mm -hmm. slay, just that type (laughs) of thing. And it was also like a TikTok that made its way to Twitter. Right. And that just generally never ends well. Yes. In terms of TikTok stuff, when something starts to take off on TikTok, what generally happens to the comments? Oh, my God. It's interesting how the TikTok algorithm works because there's definitely like certain sides of TikTok. And so if the algorithm kind of places it on the wrong side of TikTok, whether it's it's not going out to your followers as much and it's going to like people who normally wouldn't see your content, Mm -hmm. which I think is part of the issue with me is like my audience is very like in on the joke Mm -hmm. and they get that like when I use a condescending tone, it's like we're having fun. We're having a ball. Right. So I think that's part of it when it comes to TikTok and just generally, I don't know, a younger audience on TikTok, they have a lot of time on their hands, Mm -hmm. have a lot of mean things to say. They weren't in school in person. They had to bully me (laughs) 
on the internet. <laughs> what were they saying? Like, what was happening? It was a lot of, she sounds so condescending. She sounds like she thinks she's better than everyone. Like, it's elitist to tell people to read books. I think it started like that, kind of these, like, quasi-moral arguments. And then people felt justified to just be like, she's annoying and I hate her face. I have been soft canceled a few times. And <laughs> it kind of quickly goes from this is annoying, this is bothering me, to I think then I saw for you, and similarly to me, it went into then blogs started writing about it. Then the yeah. media started covering it. And then once the media covered it, that article swung back around to Twitter. Can you talk about like the way that it climbed and went certain places and then came back? Yeah, so the way it started, so I uploaded it to TikTok. And I think like originally it just kind of went out to my audience. So it had like a positive, uh, people thought positively about it. But then it made its way to other sides of TikTok and it was reposted on Twitter. And it's been reposted on Twitter like three major times <laughs> where it's, I'm like, oh my God, this again. And so then people started... People started writing about it in that, like, a lot of small publications who kind of wanted to write about me but never really had a reason to wrote about me. And then Fox News wrote an article in defense of me, which I never thought I would saw happen. That. I discovered that two days after it was posted, I was on the beach, I was in the Rockaways, and I remember just checking my email and seeing that someone forwarded that to me and like shrieking, fully shrieking on the beach because I couldn't believe it. A lot of journalists on Twitter who, you know, weren't writing articles about it, but were like making threads like, here's the problem right. with this 50 second video, one out of 30 tweets. Right. <laughs> so were there material consequences? Like what started happening in Real life. I don't really think that there were material consequences. I think, if anything, it was just an annoyance to me. And mm -hmm. I had anxiety about, like, what the consequences might be. Mm -hmm. But also, like, what did I have to lose? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I'm not sure. You know, I have friends who, who have gone through soft, soft cancellations or have had something yeah. that they made comedically misunderstood or all kinds of things like that. And sometimes in front of the camera, you're like, oh, okay, so nothing really happened. But then behind the scenes, yeah. they've lost deals or things have happened in that way. Or, I mean, were you losing followers, gaining followers? I gained followers, really. Like, I... What the f... And, okay, <laughs> and let me ask you a question. Okay, and then you handled it in a way where you were not, like, crying and apologizing. No, I think I made a video. I think my, like, quote-unquote apology video, I did something insane where I was, like... I made up a story about, like, I had a, a great-great-grandmother who was, like, at the witch trials, and I was just like her, and she, like, <laughs> peed her pants when she was about to be <laughs> burned at the stake, and I was like, I'm the Joan of Arc of TikTok. I was, I guess I did kind of lose it in a way, <laughs> but just for fun, I was like, I need to make this ridiculous, because it is. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, two ways to handle that kind of thing, which is just to be like... I said what I said, and I believe that still. Yeah. But I think there are people who do still believe the thing, but do apologize because they're concerned about losing followers. They're concerned about, you know, the way that people are perceiving them. 
So you're young, you're a lot younger than me. So do you think that the the new sort of wave of creators is like, no, I will not apologize? <laughs> yeah, I think kind of in a way. Because before like cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, just like faux moral outrage on the internet, before that was really a thing and YouTubers were like doing apology videos though, they would apologize because they actually felt like something had hurt people's feelings. But mm -hmm. I think now we're so familiar with the cycle of like, you know, someone being put on the internet and then their subsequent scandals that it's like, we kind of understand that it's not actually like something that's hurting people's feelings and that this mm -hmm. is just kind of part of it and it's going to happen really no matter what kind of content you have. Mm -hmm. I feel like people have the same level of scandalousness, whether mm -hmm. they're like, doing and saying things that are actually like insane and hurtful or mm -hmm. they just kind of say something that people on the internet vaguely don't like. So you gained followers on TikTok? Yeah, I gained followers on TikTok. I definitely gained them on Twitter. I mean, I think it was partially like the way I handled it. I don't know. People saw me and they were like, I might dislike this girl, but I at least dislike her in a way that interests me and in a way that like I might want to <laughs> keep saying her face, even if I hate it. Exactly. Oh, my God. I feel that way about so many. Like, I feel that way about the ways in which people are canceled in a way that leads more people to them. Examples being like Caroline Calloway, Trisha Paytas, yeah. like in the, I'm so fascinated by the difference between people who are canceled where it's like, I want nothing to do with you and people who are canceled where it's like, I have to watch this. Were you consciously like, okay, now I'm going to keep making content this way? Did anything change about making content or did you see like, okay, so this is kind of working, so I should sort of lean into this? I feel like my main priority was just like, I need to like stay sane because I was having... I don't know. I was having anxiety about, like, what's the next thing people are yeah. going to say about me? Like, I'm seeing what they're saying now, but what could possibly happen next? Because I wasn't expecting mm -hmm. this. So, like, what's after this? And I was just, like, I don't want to get in the habit of taking people's opinions on the internet super seriously. So I can't go on there and be like, I'm so sorry. Please, like, don't get <laughs> me. I feel like that was my main priority and I was like hopefully people see that and are kind of like oh there are people who have like lives and opinions outside of the internet and I want to engage more with someone like her who's not going to be super affected by this. Was there any sort of framing of like you have harmed me? I'm very interested in the word harm. I mean one thing that I feel like is specific to TikTok in like the uh, outrage is that people love to like trauma dump like, I'll make a video about, like, oh, my dad said this funny thing. And the comments would be like, oh, must be nice to have a dad. You know, when I said wow. read a book, of course, there are a million comments being like, I'm dyslexic. And I'm mm -hmm. like, okay. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you. I don't think it actually hurt people. I think they just wanted an excuse to kind of, like, talk about themselves and, like, what they're going through. Mm -hmm. But I did get actually a lot of responses kind of after the fact, kind of like the third wave of this video making its rounds where people were like, that actually kind of made a good point and it motivated me. <laughs> I'm not one of those people who's like, oh my God, someone messaged me saying that I saved their life. I actually saved their life. Like I don't necessarily believe that I made a huge change, but I at least made them feel as if 
that type of stuff was more important than they were maybe thinking of it as. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone was really claiming that I caused them harm. I think they were more claiming that I was like being elitist or condescending, which is not particularly harmful. (laughs) Sure. I take away from it as like, what kind of power does Serena have to <laughs> to do anything to you? Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, Serena says read a book and it's like, okay, but she's not your boss. She's not your parent. Like what, you know, like what, yeah. what way does this person impact your life in any way? Part of what we're talking about with Twitter and I think I want to ask about TikTok is the monetary way that it, it has to keep your eyeballs on it. TikTok can't exist unless people are on TikTok like 45 times a day. Yeah. And you get on it and there's immediately an ad. And so people think this app is free, but actually what it is is that like you're the product. Because like that video goes viral. You don't necessarily immediately make money off of it, but TikTok does. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a certain aspect from the perspective of someone who's seeing a video like that and seeing the response of being like, why do people dislike her? This seems like maybe a weird response for that type of content. I'm going to go through the replies. I'm going to see what she's been posting. And then from my perspective, and this was like an amateur move. I was just checking my phone 24-7. I was like, I got a name search. I got to Google my name. I have to check my notifications. I have to check my Instagram comments, my DMs, see what people are saying, get ahead of it. And so, I mean, I'm sure I made TikTok plenty of money with the amount that I was checking it out of pure anxiety. Do you do brand deals? Do you do anything like that, making money off of being an internet person? Yeah, I do some brand deals. I was in like the TikTok creator fund at the time that that video was posted. I have since been kicked off. I don't really remember what. TikTok has very strict like censorship rules. Yeah, you got kicked out of the creator fund? I probably like showed a collarbone. Like... I once wore like barely a V-neck dress on a TikTok live and I got like flagged for nudity. So I don't think I did anything too crazy to be kicked out of the creator fund. What was the creator fund or what is the creator fund? How do you get in it? Yeah, so it was just like, I guess TikTok just got a bunch of investors to uh, like invest in their creators. And then you would just make money based on views, I believe. So it was like just passively like you're posting videos and you're making money based on views. And it was like, you know, largely not that much, but it would be like Mm -hmm. a hundred, couple hundred a week, which when you were going to make Mm -hmm. those videos anyway, that's a lot of money because it's like kind of like you're doing nothing for it. Yeah, that's amazing. So when you got kicked out of the creator fund, what are the other things that that make you money on the internet? Well, I also, I got a job, like, basically because of the internet. I have a a part-time job in financial media that I got because of what I was doing on the internet. I recently had a company reach out and ask to, like, license one of my audios for a month. So it's, like, that type of thing that's, like, brands want to kind of use your likeness for their own thing with content that you've already created. So you're, like, a case where... Perhaps you wouldn't have the career that you have right now without having been soft canceled. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially like the fact that being soft canceled gets you written about, which is like a big deal. So this is the opposite of everything I've been saying. Thank you for coming on the show. (laughs) What have you been saying? I left Twitter 
it's maybe a generational thing because I think millennial generation, they do want justice. They want you to yeah. lose something, which I'm trying to figure out if that is justice. Whereas like Gen Z, I think is kind of just like, okay, cancel me, daddy, whatever. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. like a different vibe, I feel like. What has happened to this word, which I think maybe part of it not being like taken seriously as a word anymore is maybe part of why it's flipped as to what happens to people of like a younger generation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it was taken so seriously at the beginning because it was this idea of like, okay, if someone is facing those consequences and is getting that kind of backlash, then somehow they deserve it. Like, of course, they deserve it. But Mm -hmm. then you know, we noticed that it was a pattern. It was kind of happening to everyone. And it was like, okay, this is actually ridiculous. And like, let's make fun of this whole concept of being canceled. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's also like what someone builds their brand on. Because I had always just kind of said ridiculous things that I, you know, that weren't necessarily like offensive. Mm -hmm. Just things that I was like, you know, I obviously don't really believe this, but it sounds funny to say, so I'm going to say it. So I Mm -hmm. think I built an audience from that. I remember like when I first started getting followers, I made an apology video when I didn't do anything. I just thought it would be funny to be like, guys, I'm so sorry (laughs) to let you down. Like out of context, had zero scandals and see what people said. Yeah. It's easier to play on it now that we know that it's not that serious and you know it also depends on like what you're doing with your career like if you want to you know go into stand-up that's a lot different than wanting a sitcom or something like that it's right right very different standards like I didn't really have anything to lose at that point hopefully I'll have stuff to lose Mm -hmm. soon (laughs) (laughs) but I even think like If someone like you had something like that and I feel like a publisher would be like, amazing, you're getting written about, which is a flip. Yeah, because I think it's almost important or just an advantage to kind of build your platform and brand on that kind of being part of the appeal on not being like Mm. squeaky clean. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you and more about you? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, You can go to (laughs) foxnews.com. I'm on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Glamdemon2004. I have a podcast called Let Me Ruin Your Life. And that's me, baby. Clearly, I'm not being horribly censored or claiming woe is me. I have this show. I'm speaking to all of you into this microphone. I only want to provide a monetary look at a real social issue and direct you to follow the money a little bit when you use these apps for this purpose. You choose where to spend your money. You choose who to support, who you think should be able to earn a living doing what. Accountability must be part of growth and restorative justice, but I ask that you consider that time is money too. That apps like Twitter and TikTok are using your labor and thoughts and feelings, your rage, your thrills, your minds to get rich on your back. Twitter is free to use, but it also rewards you for giving yourself away for free. Make sure you know what your aim is when you fire and make sure you're getting something back for all those ads you've seen and all that educating you've done. I deleted Twitter and my life has become so much better, exponentially better. My mental health is great. My productivity is great. I'm very lucky. My career is even going great. 
Could it be better? Sure. My own choices to use Twitter in a flip way definitely robbed me of some money and some work and set me back a couple years, but I think I got out in time. I only lost one queer TV show, which we didn't even get to, and two queer books. I'm fine. I took my time off Twitter to sell two more TV shows, shoot a short film, work on my media empire for marginalized people, and attach a famous actor to my now-finished screenplay. If I have thoughts, I take action or write them into my art for money. I am more engaged in my local community. I do not miss Twitter one bit, and I don't think anyone should be on it. Your thoughts and work should not be at the hands of a tech giant with incentive to stir up shit so they can sell us ads. That is not where the work is done. Maybe Serena would disagree. Maybe there's a younger generation who has seen so many of these same acts of quote-unquote justice be used in scenarios that require wildly different tactics and reactions. Maybe using it all to your advantage to build a brand to make money will become the next wave, for better or worse, depending on the accused's actual actions. I just realized my money and my time are better spent elsewhere. <laughs>